but I think that's in general a, a startup theme, no? I mean, yeah. move fast, break things. That's yeah. something we might have heard before. Throw a bunch of shit at the wall, see what sticks. <laughs> All right. Hey, welcome to episode two of the, of the Liquidicast Huddle. Um, we're joined here today by Thomas Euler, Jonas Rubel, and me as the host, Ron Jardot. Um, this is episode two of the huddle, as I mentioned, and the huddle is, is going to be our internal podcast where we talk about things in blockchain, sports, digitalization as a whole. And this is our opportunity to kind of gather together and, and talk about cool things that we're interested in that we think um, some of our, our current clients or prospects might be interested in or just fans of what we do. Um, so as I mentioned, Thomas Euler, Jonas Rubel here with me today. And how about we have Thomas take it away first with a quick little introduction. Ron, thanks. And I guess uh, Jonas, Ron, as you know me, I, I will address the brief intro to the audience. I'm Thomas, one of the liquidity team co-founders, used to, used to work in digital transformation consulting, went that deep down the blockchain rabbit hole and then uh, rose from there to to start a liquidity team and focus on the sports technology market and blockchain and tokens and all this exciting stuff cool all right i guess i take it from here uh, jonas here um also one of the co-founders of liquidity team uh, originally studied chemistry um then same path as thomas stumbled upon uh Bitcoin for the second time in my life at the second time I really wanted to to get it so uh, I took some time over summer to yeah to look into the various aspects of it um, stuck to it started working for a blockchain development company based in the states for two and a half years and at some point a contact of mine reached out and said hey isn't sports something that could make use of tokenization? And that's basically when the idea of liquidity was born pretty much uh, two years ago, exactly today. So here we are at the huddle. Ron. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the introductions. Um, it might be a little bit strange that we're doing this kind of company introduction on episode two, but I thought it'd be a good opportunity to, for, for you know all our listeners to kind of see what we're doing as a company, see who we are and kind of how we started and where we're headed. So um, I guess the first question that I have for you guys, since uh, you guys are the resident blockchain experts, is kind of like, what do we do? I mean, we call ourselves a sports tokenization company or we make a sports tokenization platform. But what exactly is the the blockchain part of it and where does that kind of fit in i guess just give like a quick background on what what we do in in terms of blockchain so the the original idea we had was the following in in germany a lot of sports clubs so football clubs um have issued fan bonds in the past so basically those are financial instruments they issue um, where basically you borrow money from your fans and they get it paid back over time with interest and we said, hey, um, fans have shown support for their club um, whenever those things were issued. But um, the thing itself is rather boring. You get you get your money back and that's about it. You usually get a certificate that you can put up your wall. 
But um, we thought, well, that's not really something that uh, you should do in the 21st century. So why not use tokens to do that? That was shortly after the first uh, security token offering was approved by the German financial regulator, the BaFin. And so we said, hey, if this fan bond would live as a token on a blockchain and we could easily see who who has supported their club, then we could easily um, add some additional benefits to it. Like, for example, access to exclusive events or to exclusive content. And that was that was the original idea. After talking to to one or two clubs, um, we figured, well, there's also an interest in the, um, we, all, we always called it the non-monetary benefits at that time, um, in and of themselves as a standalone product. And that was the time where we basically split what we wanted to do and made two products out of one. Um, one being LT Fan Platform, which I would say is our core product right now and definitely the most effort is going into, into that one. Um, basically a toolkit to build your own fan platform in the digital realm. Um, the other thing is LT Sports Invest, which allows you as a sports entity um, to, yeah, to issue digital securities and raise money. And those things can work in combination or they can work standalone, each one of them. So basically, that is the, uh, in a nutshell, how did we get to, to our two products from here? Cool. So, um, Thomas, I, I kind of want to throw it over to you this time. You've been doing a lot of appearances lately on NFTs and digital collectibles, and it's something that's rushing through the sports industry. Almost every team or every league or every association is trying to get their hands in on NFTs. Um, I think this might be a good opportunity for you to kind of echo some of the stuff you've been saying on these other podcasts. Where do we kind of fall in that universe of NFTs and, and kind of give the listeners like one, yeah, just one good explanation of where, where we kind of fit? Well, I mean, the, the simple answer would be to say, look, we don't fit in the NFT universe because we don't do NFTs, at least not right now. But, but so from a product standpoint, we are working on, on our own solutions. But I, but I think so, so let's untangle your question a bit. I think the first part to talk about is, is NFTs in the sports world. What, what is it really? And I think what it, what, what it really has been early this year it has been a huge hype and there is some substance to it. And there is also a lot of a lot of hype and speculation going on in the in the NFT world. So if you if you look, for instance, I just wrote something that will by the time this episode is live, it will be on uh, Sports Pro, so so Sports Pro Media about about the the bubble that we that we saw and how it impacted. Uh, uh, or, or what it really meant in numbers. And, and if I tell you that like the, the entire sports industry was talking NFTs, but actually like 180,000 individual uh, purchased NBA Top Shot NFTs, which is like the most dominant platform, then you might say, oh, well, well 180,000, that is not bad. But then given that it was a global phenomenon on the internet, and if you think in internet scale, it's it's basically not a lot by, by those standards. And and the, the the substance in NFTs is well to have scarce digital objects or even unique digital objects and have a notion of ownership in the digital realm. That is cool. You can build cool use cases. But I also think that that from an innovation standpoint, much of the 
implementations that we currently see in, in the sports NFT world uh, are actually just taking ideas from the analog world to, to this new digital space and not really conceptualized for, for a, a, for a de native digital environment, which in my mind they need to be. So, so let's make it less abstract, right? If you take baseball cards and say, cool, let's take JPEGs of baseball cards and hash them on a blockchain and create an NFT that is maybe not a really co a cool digital object that you would like to own. So, so now the question becomes what makes it really cool and turns it into something that people really love and love to collect. And if you, if you think about it this way, then we will find sustainable solutions. Now let's bring it back to liquidity and what we do. What do we do? Well, so, so I like to describe what we are building with LTFAN platform, which Jonas laid out as so, so we are building the Shopify of fan engagement. So, so if you are not familiar with Shopify, so it's essentially a, a, a toolkit to build your own online shop. So, so today, if you want to sell something, uh, do e-commerce, um, then you can either, essentially, you have two options. Option number one, you, you go on Amazon and you, and you become a seller, a marketplace seller on the Amazon marketplace. And then, that has some upside like the distribution the massive scale of amazon and it also has some downsides like the full platform control that that amazon has and and uh, that sometimes amazon decides to compete against its own suppliers and so on and so forth so let's not get too deep into amazon but but then you have the other model and that is shopify and shopify means you jump on on shopify you set up your own shop but it's super convenient it's super easy right payment is solved for you customization is you don't need a programmer you don't need a designer and you can just really ring it as a person who has an idea to sell something online. So, so it provides great tools. And that is what we do with LTFAN platform. And, and blockchain plays a role in it because we have a token mechanism, which is basically part of the business logic. I think the closest approximation of how the token works in our platform is like an in-game currency where you get access to exclusive content and, and you have exclusive interaction modes as a, as a fan. Um, with your with your favorite team or your favorite player athlete and and so on so so that is what we are building and and unlike most of the nft platforms that we currently see i i like to think about our approach as we want to build something that gives our clients so we are a b2b solution right we work with clubs with athletes who use our tech to build something for their fans but it's their own platform and i like to think about us as a business model enabler and somebody who wants to allow all these sports properties and also other user groups to build their own sustainable business based around exclusive content and and community does it make sense yeah definitely i mean you kind of touched on the 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 bubble aspect of NFTs. And I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm seeing a couple startups, a couple blockchain startups are, are popping up and they're doing NFTs on collectibles, but they're trying to find a way where these NFTs are actually backed by something so that the end user can actually feel like he's owning something that's not only digital. And, you know, it, there's, it presents a, a host of, of new challenges with that. And um, yeah, I think what we do is, is we really enable companies, brands, teams, athletes, any entity that really relies on content um, as, as its main monetization strategy, we enable them to 
create kind of whatever they want on top of this platform. So I think that's, I think that's a, a great middle ground where we're sitting in an industry that a lot of people are calling a bubble, but I think we will not be affected by it when that bubble pops. And maybe, maybe for the interested listener, because I think one aspect that uh, Thomas came came short of um, explaining was, um, or part of the question was, why blockchain though? And I think like the main reason for blockchain is simply interoperability. So blockchain presents an open standard and maybe one of the most promising open standards since the internet came along and since the iPhone uh, launched with uh, the App Store launching shortly after. I think it's one of the biggest movements in the in the digital realm. And I think sooner or later, very many products, apps will will be based or will support this open standard. And that is when things become really fun. So building on blockchain in isolation is is not that big of a benefit, to be to be frank. But once, um, I mean, and it's not like there isn't already a huge ecosystem that you can tap in and that you can expand your functionality upon if you if you support this open standard. But um, I think once um, once that becomes more of a play, then also all these token based uh, yeah token based applications that you see today, they will be able to speak to one another, and that that without a huge um, development overhead, but rather natively because they're all built on some uh, blockchain uh, derived from Ethereum, if not Ethereum itself. Uh, for those not knowing, Ethereum is uh, the second largest blockchain network and uh, by far the largest developer community on blockchain. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it makes you wonder if, um, does the end user really need to know or cares that the the platform he's using has blockchain working in the background yeah definitely not no, i mean look, how many that is how many how many people are aware of the technology that their favorite apps work with i mean or who can who can explain how it works i think for the for the longest time especially when i joined blockchain uh, in 2017 i thought well we need to be able to explain this to the to the average person but by now i'm at the point where i'm like but why like they don't understand how a car works but everybody drives a car nobody knows how their smartphone works or the internet everybody uses it nonetheless so i think it is not really necessary for everybody to understand it it's certainly cool if you do but not really necessary to reap the advantages it offers yeah. agreed And there are there are maybe some some like implicit benefits to the to the technology that at some point people will just take for granted because it's fact. So for for instance, the the concept of right digital ownership, which I mentioned before. So there is a digital thing that you can really own, and and at some point this will be just how things are. Just as for us when we grew up, like like there was no scarcity in the in the digital realm. With by the, by the way, which has many advantages, right? So I can have a music file, I can send it to you, and still have the music file. Much better than than at least for, from from the consumer's point of view, that is much preferable over the the analog world where I had a a record, but once I gave it to you, I no longer had it, right? So so. But but these things just you don't need to understand how they work. They just work, and then the cultural norms and and even the business norms evolve around it. But uh, yeah, I, I fully co-sign what Jonas said there. I mean, I I mean even I think Jonas, you went to a to a conference in Paris like one and a half years ago, the last conference before COVID and the first lockdown actually. Yep. 
It was the very last real thing that happened before Corona. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the statement in your in your I'm paraphrasing in your talk there was was in front of all these uh, blockchain developers in a real real techie crowd was like uh, to to build successful blockchain projects. Stop talking about blockchain. Nobody cares or something like this, right? Pretty much. I mean, at least the the vast majority mm -hmm. of your user base won't. They will they will look for advantages. They will look for benefits that your product offers compared to to another one. But which tech stack it's built on? If anything, Jonas, I mean, just to elaborate on that, there might even be some users who are actually pushed away from the fact that it's run on blockchain. I mean, it's anecdotal, but for me, um, I've, I've you know use some of the existing exchanges and with gas fees and with kind of the, just the complexity of setting up accounts or getting funds into wallets and moving things around. There is some complexity. And I think for your, your everyday user, you're very layman, very casual. They might actually not enjoy that experience as much. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's just me, I guess, being nitpicky. You can, you can definitely say that the technology has a lot to grow and a lot of room to, to improve. And yeah, I mean, th thanks for elaborating on, on that guys. I think it's important. We kind of strayed away from the, the main goal of this specific episode, but I think it's important to kind of get a glimpse of what we do and kind of where we sit because at the moment um, everybody's getting into blockchain, it seems and be a little clear on, on kind of what we do and how, we sit at the at the intersection is important but but, but just let me ju jump in here because it's really like one of my one of my pet peeves in the in the industry currently is like you you see many of these projects just do something uh, to they build something on blockchain to be able to to use blockchain and they build much more like a blockchain product than something that real fans would, would actually love and appreciate using and and we fr from day one uh, uh, in in our earliest product design and concept sessions i know that we were in in all in agreement let's build something that is cool for fans let's not build something that that like all the the crypto but the very limited in absolute numbers amount of people who are in the crypto world would appreciate but let's build something where sports fans and and fans in general would be would be happy using it and understand it and and that type of user experience driven product design was super super important for us and i think I mean, to some extent, it might work if you can ride the hype train, right? But how sustainable is it? I, I don't know. Some stuff out there is certainly sustainable, and and if it may only be the case because they manage to capitalize on on the hype in terms of uh, uh, money raised, so they have a super long runway. But but to me, it's all about building something that is really useful for clients in the real world and something sustainable long term. And then when you approach it like this. Then, then you cannot just be driven by the hype and, and following the hype. And, and that is important, I think, to the DNA of what we do at Liquidity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think just to pivot a little bit and uh, kind of give a little more background on, on who we are and what we do, um, I wanted to ask you guys two questions. You guys can answer them as you, as you choose. Uh, the first one is, I mean, what's like the startup life here in Europe? Um, we are a German-based startup, and I kind of wanted to ask you guys, like, how have you seen, have you seen kind of, kind of 
benefits to that? Have you seen that, you know, being a, a remote company, being an international company, have you seen, have you noticed that maybe, you know, there's been some challenges or kind of what's your take? Second question is, I mean, how do we work as a company? Kind of what's our methodology to, to building this product and, like what what are the core core workflows that we do as a team to kind of make sure we bring a product that really does solve customers challenges so either of you go ahead take it away maybe i can i can go, Jonas, go start uh, answer the the first question um and that is i don't really know because i haven't had a startup in another part of the world so i can't really compare it that well to uh doing a startup in the States or doing it in, in some other place. Um, I do feel like uh, Europe is a, quite an awesome space. We have yeah, international talent. We have uh, quite the tech hubs with uh, Berlin and Paris and London being among them. Um, there's a bunch of smart people around. I also, I mean, in, in general, I'm a huge fan of Europe as it has many different cultures closely together. I think um, even if you look at our company, we have, we're quite a, um, yeah, a diverse team. So to that end, I think Europe is, is a really good place to do that. Um, I mean, in terms of, of regulatory landscape and all of this, I think every, um, every location you choose comes with its uh, shortcomings and uh, with its ups and downs. So that yeah, I'm not I'm not deep enough in this to to really comment. Hey, this this would be easier if you were in the states. It seems like the whole uh, yeah data data protection is a bit more strict in Europe than it might have been if we were to build this from the US. Um, but overall, yeah, Thomas, maybe. Yeah, but I think so. I think all this, this the regulatory overhead that we that, that is created in Europe that that, that is stressful. I, I I think now it depends a bit on what kind of startup you're building, how much of an of an impact it is. Because I I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the concept of regulatory capture. Um, but but so the the idea is that that if you are in a regulated industry and and at some point the the regulator and the regulated entities they are super intertwined and it becomes almost a, a something that keeps competition away uh, once. Uh, uh, w once this e this regulated ecosystem e evolves and emerges, and so to an extent, I think, especially if you if you do something that is B two B software, um, following like the European GDPR standards, it's it's not a downside anywhere in the world that you have these high standards. It, it makes the initial build up on on a tech, but also even more so on a, on a legal and organizational. Uh, uh, level harder and you need to invest more into into legal costs and into building out these these compliance structures which is hard for startups if you manage to do it maybe it's in in the long term a even a competitive advantage because because most there will not be many clients across the globe who will say no we don't take you because of these high standards but they but but the european market is not close to you and it's maybe close to others currently it's very hard for for us uh, uh, 
enterprise SaaS companies, for instance, to get into European companies because of GDPR compliance. So, so, but, but yeah, definitely it's, it's a bit of a hassle from time to time. Um, even, even though it comes from, I think, a, a good point. The second aspect that, that, that I think is a big difference to, to especially the US startup culture, but also increasingly the Asian startup culture is like funding and access to funding. It's much harder. To, to get funding for most o- entrepreneurs here in, in Europe. And I think we were to an extent lucky on, on that end. But I, the, the amounts that you can raise in the, in the US, even at like early stages, like seed stage or series A funding rounds, are, are much, much higher than in Europe. And, and if you have to scale quick which you have to do in many internet businesses it it helps to to have this additional funding available and and to an extent to an extent i think there are companies tech companies that that were almost like self-fulfilling prophecies because they were backed by these large vcs with these enormous amounts of money early on and then and then they just Purchase bought themselves into market leading positions, which you don't see hap- coming from from Europe. I, I mean, what global European tech companies do we have? Spotify and SoundCloud, have, especially in consumer tech. Yeah, that, that that's it. And SoundCloud barely. Yeah. I, I I don't. It's questionable if it's worth mentioning. We have Spotify, and then in the enterprise world, we have SAP, which is probably the most boring enterprise. Uh, sorry, SAP. I mean, I live close to them, and and I appreciate what they did. It's an impressive company, but still, it's uh, that, that so. That is this, and and without rambling all too much. So so the ecosystem here, it it's tougher. But then think about it. Think about it this way. Especially, probably it's even particular German and, and not necessarily European, but here people like it when you can create revenues early. And so th- there is some downside if you want to be cash flow positive or so to, to early. I think you could talk to many VCs who say, yeah, that, that is not, that is not good. If you, if you need to scale, you need to invest. You shouldn't be cash flow positive too early. But, but then on the other hand, another philosophy and mindset to take is look, uh, uh, the, 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 a German saying is "Not macht erfinderisch," right? Uh, uh, so, so out of out of scarcity and and uh, I don't know what "not" is. Can you translate this, Ron? How good is your German? Insta test. I think Jonas would probably be a better <laughs> translator. Well, probably n- not know. having much makes you uh, makes you um, improvise. <laughs> yeah. Inventive. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the hustle. So, so well, that's the hustle. That's the hustle. Yeah, when, yeah, when you know the, you can't exactly. just fall back on on uh, whatever inheritance. And maybe even better, it, it makes creative. Like it tends to, you, you come up with solutions you otherwise might not have. Yeah, you hear it all the time, the, the growth hacking and the, the you know, the, the hustle. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And and you don't splurge on unnecessary yeah. things, right? I mean, if you're a cash flow negative startup, but but you fly a hundred people to a retreat in Hawaii, I don't know if that is something that should necessarily happen. But well, there there are also arguments to be made for this. Yeah, and and I think that ties into the second question. They seem like unrelated questions, but I think it ties in well. Um, I mean, how does that influence us? As I mean, a lot of what we're doing now is product development and product iterating. And because we we're not largely funded, because we have two pretty well-known German clients, um, one being Dennis Schroeder of the LA Lakers and another being Borussia Dortmund, the, I mean, 
probably the second most popular uh, football club here in Germany. Um, we have a small roster of clients and, you know, we really need to make sure that our product helps them and that the the solutions we're creating really do benefit the customers. So, so how does that, that hustle mentality kind of influence our product development as a company? I would, I would put it like this. So, so the, the first aspect of the question is like, like what does the, the, uh, uh, notion of the european tech ecosystem and and what i described above influence this and 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 then what is like the the client relationship so i think the second part is easy you just you you just do what what ideally you should do you you are radically customer focused in your product development and customer centric and so especially since we do the the, uh, a b2b company we of course look at what do our clients need and and what do they want and then we try to translate it into stuff that many of our clients want and, and build it this way but but we build it for a market segment that exists in reality and not just in our heads and minds and that we believe in. Even, even though you also need to do this, especially if you build stuff that is new, then you need to have a strong vision of what to what to build because clients would not, like, like if you sent them a survey, what do you want? They probably would not come up with what we what we built because they had no idea that it that it would be possible. But so, so there is a balancing act, right? You need to have both in your product development. And then the first First part is well, so, so if you have large access to large amounts of funding, for instance, then then you you have more leeway to to do stuff that is that you believe in that is more experimental, and then and then in in other circumstances you focus more on what works. And again, both ha- has benefits, right? It's good to be experimental because you can stumble upon the next a big thing right and and have like a uh, uh, creative tinkering leading to great discoveries and and i still think that 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 we need to do it at liquidity and we definitely try to este- establish this then on the other hand uh, uh, there is also something into finding out what what sticks what works and and focus on this and and build this out right it's like like the the once you find product market fit double down on it yeah i mean it it sometimes sounds painfully cliche to say that, you know, we are customer centric, but I really do think that, you know, like you mentioned, the fact that we're a European based startup, we don't have an incredible amount of funding behind us. You know, we really have to be customer centric, but as you said, um, we are, we are natural growth hackers as we like, as I like to put it. And we're always looking for ways to optimize always looking for ways to be creative and tinker. And I think that's uh, something that we all share here at Liquidity Team. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Maybe also, maybe also that, that 95% approach where oftentimes you must, you must make a cut where you say, well, at this point it is, it is good enough. Uh, we could put a lot more effort into it, but then oftentimes the same amount of effort that would get you from 95 to, I don't know, 99% is what took you from 70 to 90% in the first place. And so you kind of have to, yeah, the the cost benefit calculation tends to, um, you tend to do it in favor of, well, it is good enough. Let's, let's move on and reiterate on this once, uh, yeah, once the need is there instead of um, making it perfect from the get-go. Yeah, de- definitely. But I think that's in general a, a startup theme, no? I yeah. mean, yeah. move fast, break things. That's yeah. something we might have heard before. Throw a bunch of shit at the wall, see what sticks. <laughs> yeah, 
I kind of I wanted to ask you guys. It, it sounds like a cheap way to talk about um, talk about our product, talk about kind of more salesy type topics. But I wanted to I wanted to ask you guys what are the conversations we're currently having with prospects or with people who are interested in what we do, even if it's just exploratory calls. I wanted to ask you guys like what are some of the common um, common hesitations or some of the some of the reasons or challenges that some of these people are having and how we kind of slide in to help fill that void. So, so one common, one common theme that I, that I see now, it depends a bit, right? Because we're talking to athletes, we're talking to, to clubs, we're talking to other entities in the sports world. And we are even talking to people not in sports and, and like the hesitations are sometimes a, a, a bit different and the issues that I pointed out. So, so on a, on a positive note, I think uh, it's, it's not too critical. People seem to understand what we are, what we are doing, what we are building and seem to find it useful. But then of course there is, there is, especially in like enterprise software, there is also questions that are being asked. And I think one recurring theme is content who can do the content. So, so I think the underlying theme behind this question is like, like, especially on the club side, most people who, who create content in sports, there are two types. The one content is like the live content. It's the core product. It's what is, what is distributed or, or sold to, to broadcast partners and then brought to end clients. And then increasingly you have, you, you see some OTT direct to consumer models emerge, but, but that is, more or less limited to the live content. And then, and then you have a second type of content that, that most uh, people in the sports business see as just a, a, a way to sell something to, to sponsors, to advertisers, right? So you will, you will have, uh, uh, if you check out the YouTube channels of, of sports clubs, you will see all, all these videos, which are not necessarily in, in some cases they are great, but they are not necessarily made to be great content. They are, they are made so that advertisers would put their logo on this as a sponsor present, uh, as a presenting sponsor of a format or something like this. And, and so that is how most people in the sports business think about content and, and at least one notion of our product, one way you can use it is, is the idea that you can build direct-to-consumer business um, around premium content and premium interactions. And that is something, if you if you speak to people who come from like the digital industry, the content industry, the digital media industry, then they intuitively understand it because that is how the digital world is going. But, but in sports, you have some of these people, but you also have some people who are re really... Uh, sports industry lifers and digitization is, is still somewhat new to them and, and the logic of digitization and how, how sports has to compete in this digital attention economy, um, is, is still a new environment to them. And there we need to do, uh, uh some, I, I wouldn't like to call it brainwashing, but, but definitely, uh, uh, challenge a few established notions and, and show, look, there is this cool thing that you can also do. And, and I think this will get increasingly easy the more use cases we have out and people see how it works and that it can work successfully. And, and that is, that is one of the, one of the uh, things that definitely come to mind instantly. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I can, I can kind of second what Thomas is, is saying that some of the calls or exploratory demos that I've sat through, um, it really does have that consulting feel. Um, we're kind of pitching our product and what we do, but at the same time, we're also telling them about all the different premium content, you know, paths that these uh, brands can take. 
And I think that's, I mean, it's a space. Some teams are doing it really well. AS Roma. I don't know if you guys uh, follow them on Twitter. Super fun, super engaging Twitter, Twitter handles that they have and the fans love it. So things like that, it's getting creative with your content. So while we provide a platform that they can do cool stuff on, they still have to, you know, do that cool stuff or be, or have a creative team that's capable of doing that cool stuff. And I think, um, I think, yeah, us, I mean, we understand content and we understand some of the cool things they can do. Jonas, you recently wrote an article about some of the use cases on the LT platform. And um, yeah, maybe you were going to talk about that, but go ahead. No, I was going to say another, as you asked for recurring themes when we, when we talk to prospects or potential clients, another one is, um, well, People ask us, do you, do you think our audience is uh, ready for this type of product? And I would answer, yes, they are. If you, first of all, know what you want to do with it, like you need to have a strategy for yourself. What do you want to achieve? Do you want to produce premium content and, and monetize this? Or do you want to um, place this more as a as a loyalty point thing uh, where you kind of get rewards for certain actions? And once you have figured out for yourself what you want to do with it and then clearly communicate, hey, this is what we're offering here. This is the benefit you get. This is how it will work. Then I think um, your audience is, is well ready for it. Um, but um, yeah, communication is key as so often in order to communicate with your fan base or with your audience. Hey, um, that's a cool prod, uh, product. And that's why you need to figure out what you want to do with it first. I think that's um, that's a bit of the thing. Yeah, and here one trap is also to fall into like overgeneralizing, right? I think we talk to we talk to so many people from so many different areas, and even even within sports, it's so varied, right? You cannot. You, so so you have like some super innovative smaller properties, right? Even people who don't work with us, but but you probably. Uh, if you listen to this, know about fan-controlled football, like this American football league streaming on Twitch, allowing allowing fans to influence play calls during live games, which which is something that that uh, is a very new model for for compared to what, for instance, is happening in Bundesliga or in or in soccer. And also, the fans are are different. I, I think a concept that I think a lot about um, is the digital divide. You know, like you have you have a group of people that were born and, and socialized and brought up in a pre-digital world today. And you have a bunch of people who, who, uh, yeah, we call them digital natives, right? So the people who, who really grew up in, in like the uh, internet world, like in, in my case, like the millennial generation and then in, in the gen, Gen Z. And as I recently learned, Gen Alpha generation, people don't know a world without smartphones, right? It's, they, they never experienced this world. So, and, and for these audiences, of course, they, they have a very different cultural upbringing. They have very different approaches to, to many things, how they should work in life. And it's really, it's not a techno, technological phenomenon in the first place. It's more like a cultural and almost how you experience the world, right? If it is totally normal, normal to you that whenever you have a question you can just google the answer even if you're with friends and then you can can spin this it is very different from from the experience of the world before the internet and and so now 
you, you cater to in some sports if you have this uh, fan base for, th that is pre-digital and you want to also reach the the next generation th that is digital then you have to cater to both of these audiences and this concept of overcoming the digital divide is something that is for, for for some of these sports properties i think a very real challenge and and it wouldn't surprise me if like 10 years from now some some sports that were super popular Uh, uh, in the in the early and mid 2000s probably are less popular and some some newcomers rose to fame with these digital audiences because they just understood better how to cater to this audience and well i think we are building one piece of one piece of of digital infrastructure that can help you to achieve getting to this to this target audience but like much to to Jonas point from before you have to you have to want it and you have to have some ideas how to do it yeah i mean there's pain in the struggle right or there's growth in the struggle rather and uh gen z they never really had to feel the pain of dial up internet and that that's 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 something that us you know <laughs> yeah. we lived through we grew And um, yeah, well, guys, thanks for joining me, Thomas and Jonas. Um, it was a great talk. It was great to hear kind of the origin story. It was a pleasure. Same here. And uh, yeah, like, like and subscribe, guys. Follow the podcast. We'll be publishing it on Medium as well as natively on Spotify. Five stars on iTunes. Five stars on Apple Podcast. It helps the algorithm. It helps us, you know, boost us up to the top, top rankings. Um, we would really appreciate it. You know, just give it a share. Give it a like. Um, and above all, you know, we hope you guys enjoy it and, uh, we hope you guys learned a little bit about us and send us your questions, send us any topic suggestions. We'd be happy to cover them. We'd be happy to invite any guests that you guys might be interested in. And, um, yeah, thanks so much for joining us tonight and have a good one.